Okay, good morning everyone. It's awesome to be here. I've been so excited, I was up at 5.30, raring to go. Wonderful. I'm a bit shaky and I was wondering, am I nervous? Is it adrenaline or is it the Holy Spirit? I prefer to think it's the Holy Spirit really. I'm going to believe that. Palm Sunday and In the mainstream churches, it's usually a time of real celebration and rejoicing. And often the children um, are given little palms and they make them into crosses. And in some churches I've been, when you go and you get a cross. And in the past, I've always sort of thought of Palm Sunday as being something really, really um, joyful. And it is. It is very joyful from the eyes of the people that were there. However, today we're going to look at it from the eyes of the people, but we're also going to look at it from the eyes of Jesus. James asked if I would uh, cover, or he gave me, to preach from uh, Luke 19 through to 22. They're very, very um, involved verses, and there's no way that I could cover everything at that time. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to start... Um, where it does on uh, verse 1 and it is talking about um, a salvation but before we go to that salvation I want to go to the one directly before it and I'm just going to to do a a sort of um, overview of each of them and just pick out some points why am I doing this because If any of us, and I'm sure a lot of you, have had something come up in your life where you've actually been dreading something. Can anyone relate to that? Or have you all had such perfect lives that you've never been in that situation? You know when you are really dreading something and you know it's coming up that it's very hard to switch off, isn't it? You know, you can, you can get involved in something for a little while, but it's still there over you. Now, of course, I cannot speak for Jesus, but at this point in his life, Jesus knew that he was coming to the beginning of his last week. And yet, regardless of how he may have been feeling, if there was anything like that, he just carried on and went about his father's business. So I'm starting in chapter 18, verses 35 to 43, where the blind man receives his sight. It says Jesus was coming near Jericho, and a blind man was sitting, and he was begging. And he knew that Jesus was coming. So he cries out, and he cries out his name, Jesus, Jesus. He's actually saying, he is the one who saves. He is the one who saves. And then, twice he calls out, Son of David, Son of David. Now, why would he call that? Yes, they knew that he was Son of David, but that represented kingship. So here this man is saying, You are the one that saves, you are the king. And then the last thing he cries out is, Lord. Now, that word Lord, to us today, means supreme in authority, It means another word that PC we don't really like, but it means controller. But it also means to have dominion over. So what he was saying was, Jesus, you're saving. Jesus, you're king. And Jesus, you can have dominion over me. 
he was wrapping up almost the whole, the whole gospel of the good news of salvation in those declarations. What does it really mean for us to have God, Jesus, and Holy Spirit as Lord of our lives? Little bit of a check-up here. Are we still allowing them to have dominion over everything in our lives? Or are there some areas that you might have taken over? It's a good check to have because it's very, very easy to do. And as the saying goes, he has to be Lord of all or not at all. We really, if you want the fullness of being a Christian, you need to give the fullness of yourself. So, back to the blind man. Jesus, all he needed to say was, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Saying, you've believed everything about me. You know you've believed that I save. You believe that I carry the kingship and carry the kingdom here. You believe that I am Lord of all. Immediately, because of his belief, he was saved. So on that day of salvation and his healing, it came to the one who had been oppressed for so many years. Imagine the jubilation and imagine the crowd around him, what that would have done to them. And then we start in chapter 19, and we come to the next salvation. Now, this next story could be called The Day of Unexpected Love, and maybe that is what it was like for some of us when we got saved. So Jesus, he's now going right into Jericho. This is on his journey to Jerusalem. Now, originally he wasn't staying in Jericho because he had made no hospitality arrangements whatsoever, and it says he walks through. And of course, being Jesus, that attracted an amazing crowd, and he sees a little man sitting up a sycamore tree. He knew that this man had to have run ahead of the crowd and climbed up the tree so he could just get a glimpse of Jesus. But this man, knowing he was hated by the Jewish people, a collaborator, a very despised tax collector, a very rich man to boot, and in today's language we would call him number one rip-off artist, Zacchaeus was still drawn to wanting to see this man Jesus. And trust me, running and climbing up trees was not the order of the day for those kind of tax collectors in those towns. They, they are the ones who, in the wrong way, lorded it over everyone else. And Jesus stops and he looks up and he says, I must come and stay at your house tonight. The must that Jesus uses there is the Greek word dei. And it actually means a very old-fashioned English word that people like Natalia might know. It means to behoove. It might be a new word in your, in your vocabulary today. But it means that it is necessary or advisable and it can sometimes mean compelled to. So he is saying, listening obviously to the Holy Spirit because the original intention wasn't to stay, and now he's saying, I am compelled to come and stay at your house with you, Zacchaeus. And of course, we know what happened um, with Zacchaeus. Jesus went in, so another soul was saved, but this time it wasn't an oppressed person, it was an oppressor. But Zacchaeus was the recipient of a very costly demonstration of unexpected love. He did not expect that that love was going to devour him that day. 
I'm reading a book at the moment called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. It's by Kenneth Bailey. And he, he puts four points on this exchange between Jesus and Zacchaeus. The first one, he says, Jesus offered very costly love to Zacchaeus. The second point was that Zacchaeus accepts that love, and in doing so, he accepts being found. You know, we have that one, I once was lost and now I'm found. That acceptance is his repentance, which takes place as he descends from the tree to welcome Jesus into his home. As soon as he was getting down that tree, he was saying, yes, come into my home. We say today, come into my heart, don't we? The third is that Zacchaeus is given a huge gift of acceptance in the eyes of Jesus, from one who was so rejected, certainly by his own actions, to be so accepted, even though he's still doing what he did by Jesus, was huge. Jesus is willing to enter his home to eat the polluted food, to sleep in the defiled guest bed. And the fourth point is Zacchaeus responds to Jesus' gift out of the deepest level of who he is. And the model of his response was what Jesus had done for him. And Zacchaeus receives that costly love and is thereby empowered and motivated to offer costly love to others. And he literally did. Because if you read it, he said, I know I've stolen from people, and I know normally in our culture I've got to give X amount back, but I'm going to increase it, and I'm going to give them more back. The love that he received, he immediately gave out and shared with other people. His engagement in his personal mission had already begun. Jesus stands with the oppressed and at the same time extends costly grace to the oppressor. Now, why am I, ta- why am I sharing this on Palm Sunday before, before the day comes when Jesus walks in? Because I think it's important, you know, when there's the last things that people have done, it's important to look at what, they have, what they've been doing. And here we see Jesus makes no difference whatsoever. He's still in the business of salvation, still in the business of winning souls. All right, so now we're going to come to the beginning of the week. But before we do, I want us to look at this now through the eyes of the people that are there. So just before um, the blind man received his sight, a few days before, Jesus had actually raised Lazarus from the dead. And that was the hot topic. That was top of the news. Many people had seen it, and many people had shared about it. And these were the people that were, that were um, in, in the area at that time. But I want you to understand, these people and, and what, the, what their expectation, not just that, but where their heart was a lot of the time. And so if we have a look at Psalm 118... And I'll need to turn around. So here we are now. So this is what these people were saying a lot. I suppose I should stand here. This is the day the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. 
one of the things that I actually said to God this morning, I said, Lord, is there any, anything that you want me to tell the people from you? And he immediately said, yes, tell them I'm good. So if any of you are, 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 are doubting or having wavering on is God good or not, that is, a, that is a message directly to us today from God of heaven. That was, that was the, the cry, the knowledge that was in these people, they would have said that time and again. And, and you know, the, the Jews were very good at knowing their scripture, so it was part of them. So just keep that in mind. That was the kind of joy, that was the kind of exuberance that they had when they got together, when they were wanting something and coming together to worship the Lord. So the triumphal entry, I did have to take this from James. It's said that on Palm Sunday, Jesus entered the city through the Golden Gate on the east side of Jerusalem, also called the Gate of Mercy. Ancient prophecies said the promised Messiah would enter through this city gate. And it says here, right, I'm going to read this out my Bible. I originally was going to have my laptop here and just read these off my laptop, but the technology in this church is so fantastic. Okay, we're now reading from Luke 19, verse 28 through to 31. <clears throat> when he had said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass when he drew near to Beth, Bethphage and Bethany at the mount, mountain called Olivet that he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you loosing it? Thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of it. I was listening to someone else preaching on this passage and they said, you know, when Jesus did so many good things and now he's telling people to go and nick this, this donkey, this colt. <laughs> But no, that's not quite what it was. 32 to 34. So those, who was <clears throat> so those who were sent went their way and found it just as he said to them. But as they were loosing the colt, the owners of it said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. We don't see any response from the owner, but we guess it's okay. <clears throat> now, this, this has to fulfill yet another prophecy um, of, of Jesus, of, of the word. And it comes from Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, our king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. We're very um, aware that so many prophecies um, that had been spoken were were brought into fruition by Jesus. I understand there was maybe over 200 of them. The cult. Do you know that nearly a thousand years before, another king had gone into the same city on a cult, and it was Solomon. King, king David ha had heard that Adonijah had tried to take over the ruling and the kingship and he said, no, that's not going to happen. And even though he was sick, he got Solomon, who was the, the anointed one, to go in. Why do they go on a cult? 
Why, it seems quite lowly, doesn't it? And often we've been told it's lowly and that they're very humble, which is not untrue, but it represents peace. Every time a king arrived somewhere on a donkey, the king was saying, I come in peace. And if we contrast this with Revelation 19.11, it says, Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, Jesus. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. So in those days, if anyone ever saw a king coming on a horse, they knew that they had to either draw their sword or run fast. And now here it, here it starts. It says, Then they brought him to Jesus, and they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on him. As he went, many spread their, their clothes on the, on the road. Some of them actually, some versions say that it was their prayer shawls that they put on the colt for Jesus to sit on. And as you see there, because we often relate Palm Sunday to palms, and this version only says coats, but others say that they did cut branches, that they did cut leaves, or so just clarifying why that is. Then, as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And of course, that is from the psalm that we just read at the very beginning. So can you see how excited the people were? You know, they're, they're saying, this is it. This is it. This is the time he's come. And, and we, he is going to be our king. He's going to be our savior. We are going to be free from everything that the Romans have done. Um, they're going to be gone. We can start living our lives the way that we should have done. And, and this is the hope and the, the, the joy that they have in their hearts. But some of the Pharisees call out to him and say, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered and said to them, I tell you that if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. Jesus knew that the people were going to be so excited. I wonder what the expression on his face was at that time, knowing what he knew. Now, as he draw, as he drew near the city, as he drew near, he saw the city and wept over it. There's only two times that it's been recorded Jesus wept. Once was when Lazarus was, was raised from the dead just before this is the second time. This is not the same word as that other one, as the other weeping. This weeping was because he could see in the future Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. He knew that this is what was going to happen. He knew, according to some things I've read, that between 600,000 to a million of his people were going to be killed. Up to 100,000 were going to be taken away as prisoners. And I think a lot of the weeping was to do with the fact that if the people had been more obedient, it wouldn't have had to happen. You know, as parents, we sometimes have, have done, gone through things with our children, and you've said to them, don't do that, and they do it, and there's been a horrible consequence, and you just feel, you feel so sad because if only you hadn't done that. And this is what it is on a much more grand scale. 
But you know, the weeping that he did wasn't just a, it was actually a wailing. Now, I'm going to, I've only ever once in my many, many years of living, many, many experiences in my life, I've only experienced that wail once. In my previous church, I was involved with the youth, and they were predominantly um, Pacific Island. And there was young, one young man who really was the darling of the youth group, and he got leukemia. And he went through, at the beginning, all the treatment, and he went into remission. And then, nearly a year from when he got it, he got unwell again, and he had to go back into hospital. And it, would only, it only had to be God, because... I was the only one in the room with him, and you know what Pacific Island families are like, when the doctors came in with the results to see that the leukemia had come back and there was nothing they could do to heal it. And I felt this wail start in the gut of my stomach. There was no other emotion. I, I, hadn't, I hadn't immediately thought, oh no, I hadn't wanted to cry, to, to call out. It was just this wail. And I was almost outside myself as I thought, oh, I've seen this on, on movies and TV. I didn't think it was real. And, and unfortunately, I just couldn't let it go because I couldn't show this young lad how upset I was at what was happening. And, and it took quite a while for, the, for that wail to actually work its way out over, over quite a little bit of time. And very sadly, he did. He did die. He's, he's gone to heaven. But now that I'm getting older and I know that heaven's gates are getting closer, I'm so looking forward to, to being able to see him again. So that's the upside of that very sad story. But, you know, just talking about the, the depth of what that will is like, that's what Jesus was going through at that time. Okay. I'm now skipping over to chapter 20, it's actually 22. No, sorry, it is 21. And I'll just quickly take you through chapter 20. Jesus is asked, has been asked questions by the religious people, the scribes, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and he, he starts answering the questions. Um, they, they were asking him to try and trap him because prior to that, of course, he had gone into the temple and he had upturned all the tables in the temple in his righteous anger because they were treading. They were treading in the temple when they never should have been. Um, People who came out of town when it was time to go to the temple and, and give sacrifices couldn't bring the sacrifices with them. And so people had set up stalls so that they could purchase them for sacrifice. But the people who were selling were actually robbing them. And he went in there and he just absolutely annihilated it. But actually, that was a, that was a physical act to invoke a spiritual reaction. And it was that spiritual reaction that got the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders so upset at him that that's why through chapter 20 they're asking all these questions. Now, in chapter 21, Jesus starts talking about the destruction of the temple. He starts talking about um, the destruction of Jerusalem. 
And we know that a lot of that is, is because it's um, coming up to um, 70 AD. But it's also talking about the future in his second coming. Often when there are things spoken like that, they have layers. And it's actually called the principle of double reference for people who are quite um, wanting to know what that is. And when you, when you actually read through um, most of chapter 21... You, you really need to study it quite deeply to know, is he talking about Jerusalem here? Is he talking about the future? Some emerge, but I just thought I would explain that. But coming up to the very last one, the last words that Jesus spoke, oh, sorry, excuse me in my, my technical, this one here, this is what Jesus is saying in 21. He says, be on your guard. Don't let the sharp edge of your expectation get dulled by parties and drinking and shopping. Oh, that has to be, um, that has to be the message. It wouldn't be the new King James. <laughs> Otherwise, the day is going to take you by complete surprise, spring on you suddenly like a trap, for it's going to come on everyone, everywhere at once. So whatever you do, don't fall asleep at the wheel. Pray constantly that you will have the strength and wits to make it through everything that's coming and end up on your feet before the Son of Man. And after that, he spent his days in the temple teaching, but his nights out on the mountain called Olives. All the people were up at the crack of dawn to come to the temple and listen to him. It's very interesting. The people still wanted to come and listen. They knew that he was giving something of value, and yet their actions were showing that they weren't actually doing what... um, you know, what Jesus had been telling them, well, not all of them. But in view of, this is the, the message I've put up here, today, all of that is very relevant to us. I believe that we are coming into a time, and, and Fanna mentioned it when she was um, preaching a little while ago, of persecution. And we can see that um, as, as um, things regarding hate speech are becoming more prominent, that we are going to be very, very... Um, we have to be very careful not to be scared of it, but careful that we can live through this. I, I believe there are going to be some turbulent times coming up. And I just see that the last words that Jesus spoke, they were words of warning, but they're, they're words of assurance and encouragement as he allowed himself to continue, sorry, to continue to the end of that week. What was it like for him when he started that week? Every step he took was a step of committed love, wasn't it? And on Friday, we'll hear more about what happened. This was just the two days of him arriving in, the, in, in Jerusalem. Jesus was submitted to a very, very costly demonstration of unexpected love, which along with Zacchaeus, we are all recipients of. And if we were to take anything from this, I think it's gratitude. Gratitude for many things, but gratitude that Jesus was committed to actually go on this course and carry this on and do what he did for us, for every one of us. Whether we came into the kingdom being an oppressed person like the blind man, whether we came into the kingdom being an oppressor like Zacchaeus, both of them really got what Jesus was all about. And I would just encourage us to to do a little bit of soul-searching today and saying, am I giving everything I can 
to the Lord. Am I, am I really every day working out for his kingdom? Am I, am I being the best, doing the best that I can do with the help of the Holy Spirit? Am I listening to the Holy Spirit and what the Holy Spirit is saying to me? And excuse me, but I am going to go back to the first one, and I don't know how to do this apart from going back through everything. That's it? Just go back? That's it. Because I do want us to actually, in our, in our hearts, get what the people were seeing there. So let's stand and let's see all this together so that we can burst up our spirits. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go through them. And I will praise the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous shall enter. I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. There we are. This is the day the Lord has made We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save now, I pray, O Lord. O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. God is the Lord, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will praise you. You are my God, I will exalt you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Amen and amen. Let's give him a big clap.